0: Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in
1: an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com.
2: I'm Erica White, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, October 29th. This is the 41st episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a wonderful journalist and contributor to a new classics cookbook, and I will introduce her in a minute. But first, as I do on every show, I will start with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to be a classic. By definition, a classic is an outstanding example of a particular style, something of lasting worth, or with a timeless quality. So to me, that basically means be memorable, be original, be you. And I'll take that one step further and say, If you're a classic class act, you'll be respected and perhaps imitated, as people will want to be like you. And they do say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So stand out and be a true classic. That's my tip today. Now, speaking of classics, my guest today is Helen Rosner. She is the national features editor of Eater.com and a contributing editor at the award-winning food and travel magazine, Sever where she previously served as executive digital editor. Helen is a contributor to Sever Magazine's The New Classics Cookbook, More Than a Thousand of the World's Best Recipes for Today's Home Kitchen. She has been an editor of Grub Street, New York Magazine, and Eatmedaily.com. Her writing and photography can also be found in Refinery29, Medium, and BuzzFeed. So welcome, Helen.
1: Hi, Sherry. It's great to be here.
2: It's great to have you. Uh, so... Yeah, I wanted to get into this book and the classics, talk classics with you. First, I want to see how you got into food writing.
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, how does anyone get into food writing? I think you have to really like food and you have to really like writing. Um, I came to food writing a little unintentionally. I didn't really have any life plans of becoming a journalist or being into food. Um, But, you know, in retrospect, the writing was really on the wall. I was always into journalism and into food. I just Mm -hmm. didn't know it. Um, I actually got my start as a cookbook editor. I was the assistant to the legendary Suzanne Rafer, the director of cookbook publishing at Workman for several years. And uh, through Suzanne, I became really exposed to the food world. And after a couple of years in book publishing, I moved over to New York Magazine where I became one of the editors of Grub Street, which is the magazine's restaurant blog. So uh, it all happened a little bit by accident, but it turned out Pretty well in the end,
2: yeah, absolutely. Because then, so after Grub Street, did you go to Sever?
1: I did. Yeah, I was okay. at Grub Street for about three or four years, mm-hmm. and then moved over to Sever as the digital editor. And I was the executive digital editor there for four years, and just left. Like my chair is still warm. I left two months ago um, to join the team at Eater as part of the big revamped, relaunched Eater dot com. Yes, it's all very exciting.
2: And so at Sever, when you were. Doing digital. I mean, what what did that entail with working with the magazine? I mean, were you you know how did how did the magazine and the website relate with each other?
1: They related really well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've worked at a number of different places over the years, and Sever has an extraordinary integration between its digital editorial identity and its print editorial identity. Um, like any magazine that has existed prior to two thousand one, Sever kicked off without a website it was founded in 1994 this is the magazine's 20th anniversary but um over the years it's really done a, a phenomenal job of integrating its digital presence into its identity i mean i think that recipes which in many ways are, are the spine and the foundation of what Sever does recipes lend themselves so well to the digital space because when you're cooking when you're fantasizing about what you want to cook or just fantasizing in general um you know, you can get online, you can Google chicken, or you can Google Malaysia, or you can Google Senegal, or whatever it is that's inspiring you, and find those recipes. Um, and, you know, the immersive, beautiful storytelling that happens in print, Sever with the, the deep, rich features that take you all over the world, take you into people's homes, introduce you to new chefs and new characters, those translate as well into the digital presence. But um, Sever I think, really understands that the recipe component of the brand has a, has a beautiful life online. So you know, in terms of actual integration, while I was there, which again was just two months ago, but there's been a little bit of, of shuffling since I've left a little um, bit, <laughs> just a smidge. Um, you know, the, the digital team and the print team all sat together in this big, beautiful open loft office that I'm sure you've been in, and um, you know, working with a print editor is as easy as, as shouting over the cubicle wall. It's not like we're siloed off in some corner or in a different office. Um, an editor is an editor. You know, a severe editor is a severe editor. We all were out there pounding the pavement, eating good food, cooking things in our home kitchens, finding the best products, finding the best stories.
2: Traveling around the world, too, because I've always found it to be a magazine, a beautiful magazine that covers all over the place, all over the map.
1: Yeah, it was one of the best parts of working there was traveling. I think I, I visited probably a dozen countries while I was while I was working at Sever and Ah, that's a perk I miss
2: Definitely great perk well so let's this this book here this amazing book which I am now holding and it is like it's huge I mean it's it's heavy it's how did how did this come about to do a new classics cookbook and because Sever has done other books
1: we have yeah I mean this is a real doorstopper um it's (laughs) a (laughs)
2: doorstopper
1: it's it's over 600 pages it's got over weights uh, of this oh my god seriously i have i have piles of them in my house right now and like the box it's it's oh my god it's it weighs so much but um you know there's there's over the sticker on the front cover says over a thousand recipes i think the exact number is is 1127 um and uh That represents just a very, very tiny proportion of the total recipes that Sivir has has developed over the course of the years and recorded and researched. Um, Like I said, it's the 20th anniversary of the magazine. So a couple of years ago, we started thinking that we really wanted to mark this very significant milestone with a really significant signifier. Um, So this cookbook came out. I mean, it, it feels like a pretty logical product for the brand to put out um put together cookbooks over the years that have focused on our sort of the specificity of our expertise i think as a brand Sever is all about this global authenticity it's about taking you to mexico and not just giving you sort of a taco bell version of mexico but giving you a real like here's how home cooks living in merida or living you know in oaxaca actually make their food and here's how you can make it at home without sort of robbing it of any of its authenticity um so we've published books that have been dedicated to Mexican food, to French food, to Italian food, to Chinese food. Um, this is the first cookbook that sever has put out that is just the entire globe of recipes. I think that really speaks to the entirety of the identity of the brand. That says, you know and you know, when we talk about the globe, I think I think people sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that That only means exotic recipes that, you know, yes, there are recipes in here from Iran and from Senegal and from Russia and from Malaysia and from Mexico and from Ecuador, but there are also recipes from the American South. There are recipes from California. There are recipes from Chicago. There are recipes from the Lower East Side of New York. I mean, authenticity is authenticity. It's found Mm -hmm. globally. And I think this is the first book that Sever has really put out that has a recipe focus that is simultaneously the entire breadth of the world and also the depth of our expertise.
2: Wow. Who, who created the recipes for Cre- all of them?
1: The server the test staff? kitchen. Okay. Yeah. Um,
2: I, I wasn't sure if maybe you had some guest contributors or some chefs, but it was really the whole server team that because well, that's a lot of recipes. It's a lot
1: of recipes. So so this book um, sort of serves a couple of purposes. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a greatest hits of the entire history of Sever magazine. The majority of these recipes have run in issues of the magazine, going all the way back to the very, very first issue, which, you know, is impossible to find now on eBay. I have an eBay alert. I've had an eBay alert set up for Sever issue number <laughs> one for, I'm not kidding you, about eight years. And I get an update every single week on eBay. Not a single one has surfaced. I mean, if, if anybody listening has a copy of Sever number one, I I will I will pay you a lot of money for that.
2: If somebody listening answers this, I would be blown away. Oh
1: my god, no, it would be <laughs> incredible. I, I cash money I will pay through the nose for a copy of Silver Number no. One. They're impossible to find. But in this book, you have a lot of the recipes from Sever issue number no. one. I mean the cover story of that issue was this incredibly beautiful piece about the moles of Oaxaca. And those moles are here in the book. You know, they were meticulously researched. They the, the writer like went on the ground met with these women, watched them cook, took detailed notes, brought it back, tested it in the, in the severe test kitchen. And of course, over the years, we've retested all of these recipes many times. And the standard sort of recipe development process, um, whether a recipe is appearing in print or on the website, or one of the recipes that was developed specifically for the book, of which there are several as well, um, you know, uh, we have a whole food team, a food department that will either go out and do field research, get in the kitchens with people, or they'll do extensive, extensive research, dusty, dusty volumes of books. Sever, if you ever go into the, the office, um, I mean, I think three of the four walls are just covered with floor-to-ceiling bookcases. We have an extraordinary mm-hmm. culinary library. Um, and uh, and really get in and find sort of the truest, most soul essential version of a recipe, and then test it. Rigorously in our test kitchen until we're sure that the recipe as written produces exactly what we want it to produce, but also that it's, it's true to the, the spirit and the origin of the recipe, the place that it comes from, the people that it come from, comes from, the, the role in your day and in your kitchen and on your table that it's supposed to serve.
2: Wonderful. Okay, so we're going to take a little break here and come back, so stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
1: Sun's going down a little
2: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Helen Rosner, contributor to Sever Magazine's The New Classics Cookbook, more than a thousand of the world's best recipes for today's home kitchen. So uh, I wanted to ask you, Helen, so l- last week I had on Matthew Riznik. He's the executive chef in catering of catering at Great Performances. And I asked him to ask you a question. So he wanted to know, since the title of the cookbook is The New Classics, how do you define a new classic? Is it classical dishes, translated for the home cook, or a modern interpretation?
1: I think it's a little bit of both, and it's also kind of neither of those. It's um, <laughs> <That's> um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, classic, a classic is easy. I think, I think we know a classic when we see it. Um, but when it comes to the food world, the notion of a classic is a little bit of a calcified concept. I think, you know, you say, well, what's classic Italian food? And you've got your pizza margarita, you've got your, you know, spaghetti carbonara, you've got dishes that people know off the top of their head, the things that, that you know, you might expect to find on any Italian menu, the sort of core key dishes, and and, and for the most part, Those, whether you're talking about Italian food or Thai food or Mexican food or even American food, those dishes have not changed that much over the course of the last few decades. I think, you know, pad thai is always going to be the classic Thai food. Um, Satay is always going to be a classic. In Mexico, you know, tacos al pastor are always going to be a classic. Um, When we were putting together this book and we were thinking about what the sort of driving principle behind recipes at Sevur are, and also what makes us excited about this particular collection of recipes that's between these covers, we realize that a lot of these recipes, I mean, there are over 1,100 of them, so so clearly they can't all be sort of of top-of-head classics, but all of them are, at their core, truly classical. Um, So the notion of a new classic, uh, to me personally, and also, I think, as, as far as the title of this book is concerned, is something that really bears looking at more deeply and maybe adding to the canon and saying, okay, you know... We have classical French food. We've got, like, pommes frites, and we have, you know, the bistro roast chicken, and maybe we have, like, even stuff like lamb navarin. but we want to add more to what we consider classical French food. And I think some of this is is moving in a more global direction. Some of this is that I think as, as eaters of food, we are less regimented in what we're willing to accept on our table. You know, there was a time when creamy... French food was the height of sophistication, and now people are willing to pay hundreds of dollars for a meal at a restaurant like Masa to eat sushi. People are willing to pay a lot of money to eat like a gorgeous vegetable tasting at a restaurant like Blue Hill. Um, so, so the idea of what is worth our time and was what is worth our attention and what is worth our money has been really expanding. Um, not just in terms of restaurants, and that's where this book comes in, really, to say there are recipes in here from the Republic of Georgia, there are recipes in here from, you know, places I've said before, Senegal, Kenya, Iran, Kuwait, and also regions of America that maybe previously hadn't been given a lot of culinary attention, like the Midwest, the heartland, that are recipes that speak very truly to the people who cook them and to the people who eat them as part of their daily lives, that, um you know, encapsulate the terroir of a region, that encapsulate the cultural attitudes of the people who prepare it. And, and there is something fundamentally classical about mm-hmm. that. I think it deserves that label. It deserves that respect.
2: Oh, that was an excellent explanation. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> he had another question because my guests like to ask two questions rather than one. And we're going to go with it. He asked, what's the most intimidating part of a recipe for a home cook?
1: Well, that depends on the recipe.
2: Yeah, I would think so. But he was saying, I mean, with, with great performances, they do a newsletter, and I think they they produce recipes. So he was wondering, you know, from your experience or what you would think, because I think they have that, um, that they're they're producing recipes mm-hmm. and they're seeing some things intimidate.
1: I think that um, the most false intimidation factor, the one that, that I think the vast majority of people are intimidated by and that in reality should not be intimidating at all, is the length of the ingredient list? Um, lots of home cooks, and and I myself definitely fell into this camp up until till not too long ago. Will look at an ingredient list that maybe has. 10 or 15 or sometimes 20 items and recoil from the recipe and say, oh my god, that is absolutely too much for Mm -hmm. me. Um, In some cases, a long ingredient list might be indicative of the fact that this is a complicated recipe, but very frequently, especially when you're talking about global cuisine, especially when you're talking about cultures that have an incredible emphasis placed on spices and herbs like Indian cooking or Southeast Asian cooking, a really long ingredient list isn't actually that scary at all because, you know... 10 of the 15 ingredients are just a quarter teaspoon of one particular spice or another. If you look at, like, a classical Indian curry, for example, that might have a little bit of turmeric and a little bit of cardamom and a little bit of curry powder and a little bit of cayenne, um, it looks scary on the page. It looks like a long, complicated recipe. But then if you actually get into the steps and it's just like, well, okay, you just, you know, saute all that stuff in oil, and then it's done in, like, 10 minutes. So as long as you have the pantry to accommodate this recipe then it's pretty much a cinch to pull off. Um, a similar thing applies with Asian stir-fries, for example. It's, it's really sort of all in the prep. It's all in, in getting it going. Um, that's not to say that putting together a deep pantry of Indian spices isn't itself a little bit intimidating, but spices are not terribly expensive. You can buy them in small quantities, and, and if you store them properly, they can last forever. Right. So.
2: Yeah, it's probably the first the first recipe you're going to do but if you buy those ingredients then you have them
1: exactly you're, you're,
2: you're one step ahead for the next one
1: right spend 20 bucks buying spices for this one you've got another mm-hmm. 100 recipes that you don't have to shell out for
2: right well that's a, that's a good point so in the book do you have any favorite recipes or, or like your absolute favorite
1: oh my gosh I have so many um you know I am a total artichoke fiend and um
2: I didn't know that
1: oh my god now I do artichokes are my favorite they are they are are my menu kryptonite if there is a dish on a menu at a restaurant that contains artichoke I will order it period just absolutely done um And there's a phenomenal recipe in here. It's actually, I think, the very first recipe in the vegetable chapter. Um, And it comes from Marcella Hazan, and it's called, well, I can say try to do the Italian. It's carciofi Salati e fusi al forno con la mozzarella, which means sauteed artichokes baked with mozzarella. Um, And the thing that makes this recipe so absolutely exquisite is this concept that Marcella Hazan talks about, that, that we talk about in the book, called insapiore which um, is one of those phenomenal Italian words that doesn't really have a direct English translation, but what it basically means is tastiness, like flavorfulness. It's, it's, um, it's like umami, but about everything. And, um, and in this recipe, what you do before you bake the artichokes with mozzarella, which is enough to make anything incredibly delicious, I mean, that's just the easy way out, what you do is you saute <laughs> these artichokes forever. Like, you put, them in, you put them in the skillet and you cook them until you think That you've gone too far and then you keep going and they just they darken and they caramelize and the flavors become so compounded and so complexified and they don't remotely burn because you're using a ton of fat but um but this intense concentration of artichoke flavor comes out and and it, it explodes i mean it's one of those recipes that is truly transformative um and then you go on and you bake it with mozzarella, and it just blows your brains out. But um, but that technique, I mean, that concept, and I think mm-hmm. that's really at the core of what makes this book so special is that there, are, all of these recipes contain these moments. You know, whether it's a specific ingredient or a specific technique, or you know, the origin story behind the name of a recipe. I mean, it turns out like half of the Swedish recipes in this book are named after opera singers. I mean, it's this phenomenal weird facet of Swedish cuisine. But. Um, you know this, this artichoke technique completely transformed the way that I cook. It transformed the way that I thought about vegetables. And um,
2: sounds wonderful. Oh my god,
1: I can't even. I can't. No, I, can. <laughs> I mean you just you just sold.
2: Everyone is going to go out and have artichokes tonight. That was awesome. Uh, what now in the book? And there's a section of some really nice, beautiful photos. So how were? How did you select um, which which dishes to take photos of?
1: So, these are all photos that have previously run in Sever or on Sever.com. Um, as a magazine, Sever has, has really sort of built its reputation, I think, on beautiful photography.
2: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, you know, back when the magazine was started in 1994, the, the photographic style that, that Christopher Hirschheimer, who now is, mm-hmm. is one half of Canal House, um, developed is this very beautiful sort of. Casual style of photography, really moving away from kind of the precise tweezer foods and a million studio lights that that other magazines in the mid '90s were using. Um, and Sever has really kind of carried that legacy forward. Um, our photography has always been really rich and ripe and real. Um, I think probably three quarters of, of the photos that have appeared that appear in the in the book. Um, were taken within the time that I worked at Savar and and of those photos I've probably eaten like the the physical donut pictured in that photo I've I consumed that you know these were never sprayed with glue or, or all the gross food. Lucky stylistics.
2: you. No they're I mean be, they're jumping off the page it's they're beautiful photos they just it's making me hungry um the, uh, who's who's the photographer uh,
1: a lot of different photographers oh, actually really? okay. um I I took some of them myself um I <laughs> which makes nice. me very proud I had severe um has a grand tradition of of editors doubling as photographers and I I learned an extraordinary amount about photography from the former editor-in-chief James Oslin and from our former executive food editor Todd Coleman um Todd also shot uh, I think about half of the photos in the book um and then there are also photos from, from other, you know, current and former Sever staff members, Faraday Sadigan, who's currently running the Sever Test Kitchen, Laura Sant, who's one of the digital editors, um, a former intern who went on to, to become just like this tremendously successful guy and a hugely talented photographer named Maxi Mayatoni. You know, it's, it's all in the family.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Now, you, well, let's touch on this change happening at Sever. Because James Oslin has had was with the magazine for a dozen years. Or... He
1: was involved with the magazine for for many, many, many years. Okay. He's, uh, I think, he was editor in chief for seven or eight years, and prior uh-huh. to that was executive editor. So yeah, I mean, he it's it's the end of an era with him no longer running the show. Yeah,
2: well, I'm excited to see what Adam Sachs brings to the table. I'm a big Adam fan. I was a big I'm a big James fan too. But um, what do you think uh, is Oh, I'm about to so happen. excited.
1: I'm so excited. Okay. I mean, you know, I I left uh, just a couple of weeks before before James uh, left to to go start this really exciting new magazine for Rodale called Organic Life, which is going to be coming out in the spring. Um, and they announced uh, Adam Sachs as the new editor-in-chief just a couple of weeks after that. And, and I've known Adam for a really long time, too, and mm-hmm. I've been such, such a fan of his writing. Um, yeah. You know, I think he... He was the, the editorial director, the editor-in-chief, I'm not sure what his title was, at Tasting Table, and did really great stuff there. But for me, the thing that I find so thrilling about having him at the helm at Sever is that he's a real writer, and I think he's going to be a real writer's editor. Um, and, you know, he also, he's he's coming from a very different place than than old Sever used to be. You know, he's you know famously best friends with, with Rene Redzepi of Noma. I mean, he's he's more involved in sort of a chef milieu than... Than old Sever. Um,
2: I thought you were gonna say he's famous, famously famously uh, best friends with uh, Adam Rappaport. <laughs>
1: he and Adam Rappaport are also good <laughs> his rival now, right? Right. The two Adams, the Adam Death Match. Um, but you know, I I think that that Adam Sachs is he's a, he's brilliant. He's gonna do mm-hmm. brilliant stuff. Um, I'm a little jealous that I'm not there anymore to like see what's gonna happen and be or to be there anymore to, to have it happen with me in the office, though I'm beyond excited about the the job that i'm doing now at eater um but no i mean i i expect nothing but good things
2: yeah yeah no me too and speaking of eater because yeah eater's been going through a lot of changes and it is exciting what you're doing now because you're doing the long form writing mostly for the that's right yeah so
1: i'm the features editor um so for the last month, we've been running, every Wednesday, a, a long-form feature, which has been running nationally. I haven't written any of them yet, but I've I've been acquiring and editing them. Um, for example, today we ran a, a really beautiful story by the Chicago-based food writer, Mike Sula, who won a Beard Award last year. He's the restaurant critic and a senior writer at the Chicago Reader, which is the, the city's all-weekly, and, and just, I think, one of the most... Sort of nuanced and detail-oriented and, and writerly food writers working today. And um, I sent him to Western Kentucky, to Princeton, Kentucky, to spend a couple of days with this fascinating woman named Nancy Newsom Mahaffey, who is the third generation of her family to be selling Newsom's Country Hams, which uh, are, are generally considered by by chefs who, who are the kind of chefs mm-hmm. who would know, really, to be absolutely the pinnacle of ham production in america just the most beautiful beautiful product and um you know mike went down he spent a couple of days with her and he produced this phenomenal portrait of her as a human you know as as a woman running a business that's in a largely male dominated world as a person who's holding up the legacy of, of what is fundamentally a 350 year family tradition of curing these country hams a history of country ham itself um and and you know it's it's long as heck. It's a really long story. It's about six thousand words. It'll take you a good forty five minutes to an hour to read. When wow. you sit down on your couch, get comfortable. You know, it's serious, like capital J journalism. And um, and it's something Eater's been really investing in. And it's it's so, God, I mean, it's a dream come true to have this kind of job to be able to just say yes to really exciting projects and work with the best writers and the best photographers and the best designers and. And, and to feel like I'm really, you know, producing something that, God, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's just the best.
2: That's <laughs> terrific. I'm very excited for you, and I'm excited for Sever. All good things happening.
1: All good things.
2: Okay, so we're going to take another break here, and we're going to come back. We're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. So stay with us. This is all in the industry, in Heritage Radio Network. Okay.
0: White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com.
2: Okay, we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Helen Rosner, and it is time for my speed round game. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay, great. I'm going to name two things and you just pick your preference. Okay. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, or cocktail? Cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive charge. Woohoo, I think you were my first one on that. Sorry, that's awesome. I got, I'm going, I like getting variety. Nobody's ever said. No I don't was, think
1: so. Oh my God, but it's so much more ethical. Okay, we can talk about that <laughs> later. Later, <laughs> another
2: show. Okay, I'll keep going. Sorry. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Eater or server?
0: Oh, Pro- this is impossible. I know, I, I shouldn't have done that. We can skip that
2: one. <laughs> Tie. Um, long form or short form writing? Depends on the writer. Mm-hmm. Twitter, or any other form of social media, Twitter forever yes i i 'm going to interrupt the game by saying I noted how many tweets you tweet <laughs> because I had to look because you you 've done over fifteen thousand tweets, and I have three Twitter accounts and i 've done eight thousand tweets, so you 're almost double
1: in my defense i 've been on Twitter for a really long time, like i was I, I joined Twitter back when no one was on twitter
2: but you're you're like i'm active but you're like active capital active
1: yeah i'm 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 kind of a crazy person
2: it's awesome thanks awesome seems to be my word of the day (laughs) all right two more cheese plate or dessert
1: neither i'll have another cocktail
2: (laughs) fabulous manhattan or brooklyn
1: manhattan the cocktail brooklyn the borough
2: (laughs) Very good. Very good. Okay, let's talk some industry news. So l- this week, Zagat survey came out, and there was an article in the Daily News. Uh, it was by Gina Pace, and she was talking about how New Yorkers are going for the casual restaurants and talking how the popularity of places like Five Napkin Burger, Shake Shack, Second Avenue, New Deli, Katz's, uh, they've, they've jumped up in their rating. I was I couldn't believe they said 5 napkin went from number 29 to number 3. It's like huge difference. Uh still though, over the same over the years La Den has remained as the number 1 food and Gramercy Tavern is the number 1 most popular. So that's kind of been the same for a while, but it seemed like this casual thing was happening.
1: It's kind of huge. You know, I've, I was reading the same article and and looking at the same stats and what I I'm curious about, because you know the restaurants that that really leapt up Five Napkin Burger, Shake Shack, Katz's are all really delicious mm-hmm. um, but they're all also very popular with tourists and True. so that made me wonder, you know, putting on my sort of like sociology 101 hat like what is the methodology here? What does it mean for a restaurant to be popular? And um, I, my guess is is that you know, people are really excited about the Zagat survey and and people love to respond to these things and you know, maybe maybe we're just getting a slightly different cross section of people responding to the survey. I mean, yeah, that's a good point because you know i I eat it at all those places pretty regularly in the course of my rotation of trying to eat at every single restaurant in New York at all times but um and they don't <laughs> seem you. like excessively full I mean they're always packed because they're fantastic restaurants and and they're popular for a reason. but you know jumping from what was it twenty nine to number three, three. for for mm-hmm. five napkin burger seems. You know, it's not that much more obscenely packed than it usually is. I mean it's so so what does it mean for a restaurant to be popular? Does it mean that more people are responding on the survey? Does it mean More that
2: more m- tourists are responding on the survey. There you go. Possibly. So that's my theory.
1: That's my yeah. working hypothesis. No, it's interesting. I I mean,
2: like the guy's been around for a a long time and it's it's consumers, you yeah. know their opinions but who who are those consumers yeah. filling it out
1: and i think that outside of new york also i mean it's a very well respected well-known mm-hmm. brand mm-hmm. so absolutely if you're coming to new york from say a city that doesn't have an eater.com dedicated to it your point of reference might be sagat and so you'll pick up the new york sagat and, and want to participate in that survey yeah well it's still very popular popular. I mean, we'll
2: see what happens next year. We'll see if it remains or or, or what direction it goes. I mean, anything that gets more people to Shake Shack makes me happy. I freaking love those burgers. Now, not casual restaurant reviewed today in the New York Times, uh, opposite, but vegetable tasting menu, Blue Hill in Greenwich Village. New York Times reviewed it by Pete Wells. He gave it three stars and it's been reviewed before. It was last reviewed by Frank Bruni in 2006, three stars and uh, I looked up too from Stone Barns. Th- Stone Barns also has three stars, so I've actually never eaten at the Blue Hill in, in the Village, but I've been to Stone Barns, and um, I mean, he, he was, you know, he he, he he it was a funny review. Do you see this? I mean, he was talking yeah. about petting squash, and
1: <laughs> I think that's what makes Dan Barber's whole philosophy of cooking so much fun. Is mm-hmm. it's 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 fancy food. I mean, you know, you're you're paying dearly for a very sort of formal, thoughtful, intellectually rigorous food experience. But at the same time, you know, I think I think Barbara understands that it's just vegetables, it's just food. Um, and he lets you have fun with it. I mean, in the review, uh, Pete talked about how he was petting this tiny squash like it was a kitten. And, and you know, you can do that. You can do that. And it's not going to feel weird and your server is not going to make fun of you because the, the tactile part of this is really fun. Um I've been to Blue Hill at Stone Barns many times. Um I think I've it's my I think I could fairly say it is my single favorite restaurant, period. Yeah. Blue Hill at Stone Barns is to me everything that I want a really fancy, really special dining experience to be. Um and I've been to the Blue Hill in the Village twice, though not for a couple of years. They're very different and very similar at the same time. Um well, I think
2: ambiance is the biggest difference even yeah. though, you know, from cuz and Stone Barns I when I was there I had an incredible experience but I will say it was the longest meal I've ever had Oh yeah I mean, I mean, it was literally, we started at five and we didn't get out of there until close to midnight. I mean, it was like forever. <laughs> forever.
1: And the tip, the tip that I give people, because like I actually talk about this all the time. I'm such an evangelist for Stone Barns. I love it so much. I think the key, like the pro move, is actually to go for lunch on the weekends. Um, they serve the same menu. It's still this intense, beautiful tasting experience. But if you sit down at like 12 or 1 o'clock, then instead of getting up at midnight, you just sort of eat your way straight through to dinner. And um and and then you're also there sort of during the sunlight and the daylight. It's this beautiful soaring dining room that's converted from an old barn, I think. Um, and you can spend time walking around the farm, like meet the pig before you eat the pig, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but you know, if if you can get a reservation in the first place, because my God, it's difficult to get a reservation at Stone Barns. Um, I highly recommend going for like spend your Saturday, get a twelve thirty reservation for yeah, lunch, it's and a good at, tip. get up from the table at seven pm instead of one am. <laughs> Yeah,
2: yeah, it's a great tip. And this was a great review. I mean, when when Blue Hill um when it first opened it received two stars, so it's been at the three star level now for a while. So um congratulations, Dan Barber. Yeah, well deserved. Yeah. And uh the last article I had was on Eater National. So it's about this new app called Reserve, and it was basically saying it's a concierge tip for hot restaurants in the US. Hillary Dixler wrote this and I I downloaded it after I read this article but it was they're still in beta and it's basically saying it's a, a new dining concierge app that there's a $5 booking fee they're starting in New York LA and Boston and you know there's a lot happening with these apps and reservations and I'm not I don't yeah, I haven't played around with it, so I'm not that familiar, but I, I think it's interesting what's happening, you know?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, Hillary Hillary Dixler has done done a lot of really phenomenal work kind of covering this phenomenon of people paying for reservations in one form or another. Um, this particular one, like you said, is a con- is a concierge service, so I think the way that they, they pitch it is that um, you pay $5 to the app, and then the app, the people behind the app, have relationships with these restaurants, and then they call up. And they'll say, hey, you know, I have Sherry on the other line, basically. And she wants to get a table between 6.30 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. on either Wednesday or Thursday or or whatever Mm -hmm. range you give them. And if the restaurant has something available, they give it to you. And I I think they might not always guarantee that you get a table that you request.
2: Yeah, that was the impression I got.
1: But the hook here, the hook that is fascinating, like, and and I say this is a value-neutral fascinating because I haven't decided if I like this and I think it's brilliant or if I hate this and think it's despicable, is that you can bid to pay more than the listed menu price to entice the restaurant to give you the table.
2: Yes, I saw that and I wasn't sure how I felt about it either.
1: I mean, the the sort of free market capitalist in me thinks that this is phenomenal and then the rest of me is like, wait, no, this is this this feels like another mechanism to reward, you know, bankers for their massive paychecks and, and keep the rest of us out of the prime tables at prime time. But you
2: can you can only pay more, you can't pay less, right? Well, yeah. why would, a
1: restaurant restaurant <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to do that one. But that's a groupon, right? And we all know what happened with that. But um but so so that, you know, distinguishes this from other services like um Oh my goodness, I'm not remembering. There was there was one that I don't think is around anymore, where you could just straight up like pay for a reservation. Like they would go on open table basically, or call restaurants and they would make reservations under their own mm-hmm. name, and you could. Buy. It was totally right. under the yeah. table. It turned out to be kind of illegal or certainly unethical. Um, and then you have other services like Resi, which I think are really interesting because they're working in concert with the restaurant, and instead of the diner bidding to literally just like pay more than the menu price. Um, the restaurant sells you the table directly and Resi is essentially the middleman. So they'll say, you, you know, you come in to say Charlie Bird and, um, you pay however much it says it is on the menu for your meal and for your wine and, and, and for your cocktails. But, um, through Resi, Charlie Bird can say, okay, well, you know, we have a prime table for two people at 8.30 PM on a Saturday, how much are we willing to sell that table for to the highest bidder? And so they'll sell it for like fifty bucks, and then Resi takes a cut.
2: Right. So yeah, I had on Ben Levithal. We did a show on Resi here. Oh, so you're an old pro. Well, <laughs> no, it was great to learn more about it. And one thing I'd like too that they did was some of the restaurants give a charitable donation um, to City mm-hmm. Harvest, or you know, they don't even they're charging twenty bucks, but they're they're giving it to charity, which I thought was really cool.
1: Well, what I think is kind of. Cool about Resi specifically, and and I've actually never used it personally. I have the app on my phone, but um, I tend to just sort of walk into places and then eat at the bar. Ditto. um, <laughs> but like you know, my my sort of inner econ major really likes that that Resi addresses both the sort of demand issue so it allows people to pay extra to get tables at prime times mm-hmm. but it also kind of addresses scarcity so like a restaurant that maybe doesn't take reservations ever will sell some tables on resi like rosemary's for example in the west village where you can wait for ages but they could say you know like we don't take reservations but we're running kind of slow at five thirty on thursdays let's sell these tables and the incentive of not having to wait in line of knowing that the table's going to be there can maybe help them fill the dining room so that gets it kind of coming I, I find that appealing. Um this new sort of concierge thing, which what is the name of it again? It's called Reserve. Reserve.
2: Um they're all very similar names. So similar
1: <laughs> concept. We need I like mean.
2: Yeah, we need I need an Excel spreadsheet with all this. But um yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll but see. it's it's changing. Changing dining. I
1: wonder so. who the demographic is for this really. I mean I I think that I have this knee-jerk reaction that it's, you know, I bankers and Wall Street guys, but but I mean, what do you think? Do you think, like, the average New Yorker is well, really paying for a reservation? Well, I think
2: resi in particular is, is more for the person with the expense account that's like, it's 4 o'clock and they want to go to a hot restaurant that night for dinner and they're just going to look and be fine paying for it. I think people like us who eat out for a living, <laughs> we, I mean, what I do all the time is I go early or I sit at the yeah. bar and I go solo. I mean, that's my thing. Exactly. But most people aren't, I don't think, like us.
1: I think that's true. We're lucky.
2: Yeah, we are. Okay. (laughs) We're going to take another break here and uh, come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. So stay with us all in the industry, Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it's time for my solo dining experience of the week. Now, but first, before I do this experience, I wanted to let you all know, very excited, I wrote about my episode 29 solo dining experience I did at the French Laundry, and I wrote about it on Fathom. If you want to check out the piece, it's fathomaway.com, and the title is, I Flew Cross Country on a Whim to Eat Dinner Alone. Now, this week, I checked out Empion al Pastor. Here's the rundown. The location, corner of St. Mark's and Avenue A in Manhattan's East Village. The concept, a taqueria specializing in its namesake, Tacos al Pastor, plus an extensive cocktail and bar menu. The chef, Alex Stupak of Empion Taqueria and Empion Cochina. Why did I go? Because Mexican cuisine is all abuzz now in New York City and I wanted to see what Alex was doing at his new place. My experience? I went over the weekend for an early dinner. I walked in past the bouncer, yes, they have a bouncer, and I immediately felt like I was in a dive bar with a Mexican menu. I wasn't sure how the service worked when I arrived, but then I saw a short line at the bar, so I got in it. And soon, I ordered my food and drinks from the bartender, was given a number stand so the runner could find me with my order, I took a seat at the end of the bar, and within five minutes, my food was delivered to me on some dive-like paper plates. What did I get? Of course, tacos al pastor. I also had the guacamole and chips, drunken black beans. They were $4 each, and I also had a Perrier. My take. Everything was really tasty. I especially liked the beans that had the al pastor s- scrapes in them. Scraps. I knew I was going to say that wrong. All right. Scraps of al pastor. The scene. Low lights, graffiti walls, loud music. There were groups of, you know, groups there dining, drinking, mostly communal tables, and there are some stools around the perimeter. I'd say this is perfect for the munchies and drinking with friends. Interesting tidbit the Alpastor space was a punk dive bar called Alcatraz back in the 80s, and Alex purposely designed it to return to its roots, covering the walls with graffiti. His designer was Glenn Coben, who was my fabulous episode number five guest. Personal fun fact, I don't like corn tortillas. I consistently try them, thinking my taste may change. So as usual, I took one bite of my taco and then just ate the filling out of it. Sorry, but I'm still a flour tortilla girl. The cost, $16 total. Would I go back? Sure, especially for a late night snack. The website is mpon.com all righty so it is time for the final question helen next week my guest is randy fisher he is the president and founder of cream which stands for culinary related entertainment and marketing he's the guy behind the the burger bash and all these big nyc food and wine events he makes them he makes them look seamlessly easy and run so can you ask him a question
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, when it comes to the Burger Bash, which is such a crazy, crazy over-the-top event, I want to know, what is the most amazing thing that's happened to him at a Burger Bash after party?
2: <laughs> the most amazing thing.
1: Yeah. Has he, like, gone out doing shots with Rachel Ray? Like, what's what's the best story that's come out of an after-the-Burger Bash after party? Good question. Yes. I hope we get some juicy answer from Randy. Yeah, and be honest, too. He's got to be honest. No, No diplomatic, no censoring, real truth.
2: Okay, I will ask him.
1: I can't wait to hear the answer. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Everyone go buy the Silver Cookbook. Oh, yeah, I forgot. So where can someone get this book? Uh, you can get it um, on com. You can get it on Amazon. The list price is thirty nine ninety nine. And before you recall it, remember this is like 1,100 recipes. So that's, what, less than three cents a recipe? That's totally worth it. It's a hot deal.
2: I don't know if Ryan Sutton's doing, he can do the math. Yeah, right.
1: Ryan, Sutton, Ryan Sutton would say this is a strong buy. <laughs> strong
2: buy. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, thank you. I've been talking with Helen Rosner. She's of Eater and of Sever's The New Classics Cookbook. Their website's Eater.com, Sever.com. Of course, Amazon.com is where you can get the book. And her Twitter, which you should follow, is at Hells. My Twitter is at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. And as always, if you miss a live broadcast, you can find us archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are on Stitcher. We are on iTunes. Thanks to my engineer, Jack. Thanks to Helen. And thanks to everyone listening. I'm Sherry Bayer, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Till next week, have a good one. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.